0: Welcome to Radio Who, What, Why, I'm Jeff Sheckman. As we've discussed here many times before, Trump, Brexit, and the worldwide populist revolution are not causes, but symptoms. Symptoms of a wider systemic plague, a fear of change, anxiety, and a feeling by people of being part of a world they no longer can control or even understand. Technology today, rather than being a cause, is merely the host that carries the fear. Not unlike the Industrial Revolution a century ago, disruptive change takes its toll. The difference now is that it all happens at hyperspeed and in full view 24-7. How we deal with it, whether we put those that have been left behind in Hillary Clinton's basket of deplorables or find leadership that will lift up entire countries, may very well determine the fate of the world. We're going to talk about this today with my guest, Ian Bremmer. He is the president and founder of Eurasia Group. He's the author of 10 previous books and lectures widely and writes a weekly foreign affairs column. It is my pleasure to welcome Ian Bremmer to Radio Who, What, Why to talk about Us Versus Them, the failure of globalism. Ian, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Uh, delighted to be with you, sir.
0: Is it a failure of globalism or is it a failure of leaders to sell the benefits and the reality of globalism?
1: Well, I mean, you could argue it's both, right? I mean, it's not the failure of globalization. I mean, the economic process works. You've created an enormous amount of wealth, you've brought a global middle class into being, um, and you've reduced the price of goods. So globalization does, as it works as promised. But globalism was is a political. Right. uh, Failure. It it is the failure of leaders and their institutions, the failure of the structure. I don't want to give it just to leaders because you have to recognize that when you have a system where it's taking 18 months to run an election and it costs billions of dollars and you have massive private interest and special interest lobbies that are able to ensure um, that, you know, big changes in in policies just can't happen you know, the AARP and Big Pharma makes big changes in health care and affordability of drugs, just not on the agenda, right? Is that, is that a failure just of leaders? I'd like to have more courageous and strong leaders, but I think it's broader than that.
0: Is it a systemic failure in that the kind of democracy that we have been operating under, the kind of system we've been operating under, simply is inconsistent with, doesn't work with, a globalized structure,
1: Uh, It certainly doesn't work with a globalized structure when technology is added to the mix, right? That's the piece that I think really frightens me because in the last five years, we've seen um, that the media no longer functions for civic democracy. It's become something that's really dividing people um, because it's all about advertising to people only the information they like. And far more people are gonna get displaced by technology, big data, automation, artificial intelligence, than were ever displaced by globalization and jobs moving to China. So I worry that our existing political institutions are not quite up to the task of what we need to do to make it work for the average American, European, Canadian, Australian, you name it.
0: Right. I was going to say, it's not just our political institutions, but really it's the, the political institutions of the West, of liberal democracy.
1: That's right, because I think Americans seem to think there's something about the United States that's particularly toxic, and that's why we got Trump. Just not true. I mean, we got Brexit in the UK with exactly the same kind of voter base. People that didn't want to hear facts from you know their political leaders their business leaders their media because they felt like they'd been lied to for decades and so they just didn't trust those institutions anymore it's exactly why you got the german elections against merkel it's why the italians just voted all the establishment out by far the most anti-establishment votes since world war ii it's why macron almost lost in the first round and had to get rid of his established parties to be able to win as president the only advanced industrial democracy in the world that is not having this problem is japan And it's really interesting. The population is shrinking, right, which means that uh, the average Japanese, even though the economy is not growing, is doing much better per capita. uh, They don't accept any immigrants, and their military is constitutionally forbidden from actually fighting abroad. So in other words, the one country that doesn't have a problem with globalism is the one country that rejected globalism.
0: (laughs) Well, it's also in part with Japan that the population is it's such a homogeneous population and that it's really hard to find some some other quote unquote to blame.
1: Well as I said, no immigrants. Right? right? right. I mean, you can't be upset with immigration if there ain't no immigrants. I mean, people have been telling the Japanese for decades, you're not growing. You need to bring in, you know, cheaper labor from Southeast Asia. and The Japanese have consistently said, no, we won't do it. We'll accept lower growth, but we're gonna maintain our homogeneity. And you know, you've seen in Scandinavia, these are countries that everyone thought were the paragons of social democracy, liberal democracy. Suddenly they bring in huge numbers of migrants from places like Iraq. And then they start voting for political parties that feel like the national front in France. And, you know, that's not social democracy.
0: The argument that globalization, both as an economic and a political institution, has been good for the world, that it has brought down crime, that it has created huge middle classes in in many parts of the world, including China and India, most notably is there any value to people understanding that argument?
1: Um, yeah, of course there is, but you can't give them that argument um, in in the abstract when they're suffering from um, an unprecedented opioid crisis um, or when their educational system isn't good enough to get them a functional job and when their factories have closed down. It just doesn't work. I mean, I grew up in the projects And, you know, my mother read the National Enquirer every week, brought it home. She's a smart woman. She wasn't an educated woman. She dropped out of high school. But she understood a much more fundamental truth than globalization is creating a lot of cash, which is screw all this globalization. Um, What about my kids? And no one's going to take care of my kids unless I get something done. I need to lie, cheat, and steal. But I'll do that. To get, to get an opportunity for my kids. And, and I, I think that if she were alive today, she would have voted for Trump. My brother did. Um, and I didn't grow up with any capitalists because no one in the projects had any capital. And I, I just don't think that you can convince people in my community that globalization is something they should vote for unless the people that are making all the money off globalization start actually caring about them.
0: How is this different? I mean, other than than the obvious ways, but in terms of of some of the broader issues, how is it different from the upheaval that we experienced, that the world experienced during the Industrial Revolution?
1: Look, I I think that what they call the Gilded Age, right, um, uh, pre-depression, is very similar to what we're experiencing right now. I would say there are two big differences. The first big difference is we in the next 10 years are going to be surpassed the united states by china that will become the world's largest economy and unlike during the great depression uh... china is a competitor that does not agree with us in our fundamental outlook towards the world china is not a liberal democracy they're an authoritarian political system they're not a free market economy they're a state capitalist economy run by the state Um, and so therefore the potential timing for us to go through this, you know, sort of crisis of identity in the West is really bad because it's happening when China has Xi Jinping as president for life. They've got the China dream and they're about to become the largest economy that way. And they're they're writing big checks. They're doing a Marshall Plan right now. It's called One Belt, One Road. Mm-hmm. They're writing really big checks for other countries to align more with Beijing. while we couldn't be bothered even thinking about that. So that's one big difference. The second big difference is that um, the the speed of technology in displacing workers is happening so much faster than what we've seen in previous industrial revolutions. And we just don't know if at the end of this new industrial revolution, we're going to have so many more jobs that'll be higher end and the only problem will be making sure that people are trained to take them or will AI simply mean we don't need as much work? Because, you know, we had in previous industrial revolutions, human beings were fine, but horses weren't, right? We, we ended up with only one-tenth the horse population that we had before the industrial revolution because you didn't need them to drive electricity and steam engine anymore, right? So instead, horses were suddenly useful only for entertainment and food. And, I mean, if that happens to human beings, I mean, I'm pretty entertaining. I don't know about you, uh, but for the average human, that's not going to be an, that's not an attractive outcome.
0: Given all the inherent problems, economic and political, that we've been talking about in globalization, to what extent do you see it all being exacerbated in in really fundamental ways by this populist revolution and by Trump-Brexit at all?
1: It is um, exacerbated because the solutions being offered by Trump and Brexit are not ultimately going to make life better for the Western economies. And by the way, um, if Jeremy Corbyn becomes prime minister in the U.K., that's going to be much more damaging than anything that happens through Brexit. I mean, he's not a good version of Tony Blair. Mm. He's kind of like uh, a good version of Trotsky, right? Uh, And so a lot of damage to the British economy in the long term. And if you don't have the money, your ability to take care of the poor people is a hell of a lot more challenging than if you do have the money. But, you know, having Brexit and having Trump should serve as the beginning of a wake-up call. I'm not sure I write this book if it isn't for Trump and Brexit, right? I mean, if, if Brexit had gone the other way, it was a pretty close vote. If Hillary had won, you'd have a whole bunch of people pretending things was fine, things were all fine. And so even if I wrote the book, everyone would say, bah, don't pay attention to that. So I think more people are willing to think about this. And you're seeing, and not just about books, but you're seeing more CEOs saying we need to really invest in the future of our workers that otherwise won't have a shot. We're seeing Steve Case, the former AOL CEO, who's now investing in venture capital for uh, entrepreneurs in flyover states that otherwise never got the cash from, you know, sort of the big investors. That wouldn't have happened I think if it wasn't for Trump and Brexit. So, I'm glad that we're starting to see some local level experiments and i'm hoping I mean, if i one if my book does anything it'll be to to create a lot more people that want to start experimenting mm-hmm. because we're not going to get the solution until we have a lot more people trying things like gig economies locally and universal basic income locally and better training, universal lifetime, and seeing what's too expensive, what works, what doesn't work. We've we got to start addressing this problem in small ways before we can do it in big ways.
0: It's interesting that you talk about those potential solutions, and, and I agree with you that those potential solutions are going to come from the bottom up in some cases they're going to be local in terms of the experimental nature of it, and they're going to come from the business community, which seems to have a clearer or certainly sharper eye about all of this than Washington does.
1: Yeah, no oh, no question, because Washington's just broken around this stuff, right? I mean, you know, the idea, given how incredibly divided uh, Congress presently is, how incredibly captured uh the political process is by special interest. No one out there really believes that big government is gonna make is gonna move the needle in the near term. Maybe we can avoid making some big mistakes. Maybe we won't do an Afghanistan or Iraq war the next time around because people will be gun shy. And I, I think that's a lesson that was learned to degrees by both Obama and by Trump, mm-hmm. right? Uh because let's face it, it's not the wealthy people that are fighting those wars. It's the, the enlisted men and women and their families, and they, those people didn't vote for Hillary. Trump is one of the least patriotic leaders I've ever seen in this country. You know, he dropped, dodged the draft seven times, bone spurs, said McCain wasn't a war hero because he got caught. I mean, but people, but the enlisted men and women, not the officers, the enlisted men and women voted for Trump anyway. And they voted for him because they thought, well, he, he's not, maybe he's not the one that's going to keep sending us to these failed wars. That's interesting.
0: What role is China going to play as this situation continues to evolve? What ways in which China, and and as you touched on it before, is really operating on a global stage now? How will they find ways to exploit this?
1: They are the big winner globally from Trump and from Brexit. And from everything that's happening with us versus them right now, because they have an alternative model. And for decades, we've been saying that they were going to become more like us, that as they became a consumer driven middle income economy, they would need to politically reform or they'd fail. Turns out that's not true. So first of all, it gives more legitimacy to their own system. No one is pushing China for democratization and bigger human rights right now on the global stage the americans can't credibly say that and you know beggars can't be choosers if other countries want their money and they're the only ones building infrastructure then you're going to accept whatever the chinese say so that's one way they take advantage but a second way they take advantage is if the americans don't want to lead if it's america first and if we're saying we don't want to put the money into NATO, we don't want to support the Trans-Pacific Partnership, we're not interested in all these multilateral alliances where other countries take advantage of us, suddenly the Chinese look more like you know, a, a real alternative, and a lot of countries around the world are hedging towards China. Um, that's not as true militarily, militarily, the Chinese are only a regional power, Taiwan, Hong Kong, the Southeast Asians, they understand that. But economically and technologically, the Chinese are increasingly setting alternative standards, competing standards to those of the United States and our allies. And that will ultimately mean that more economies will shift to those standards and they'll shift to the Chinese currency that'll undermine American growth.
0: Given the nature of the divide today and, and the way in which technology accentuates that, as you talked about before, how does all this turn out?
1: Um, you know, the, the, pro, the technology piece is by far the most troubling, mm-hmm. because I think that for the last for 25 years ago, you may remember a little, there's a cartoon in the New Yorker magazine with a dog that was on a computer, and he talked to his other friend, another dog right. that wasn't on a computer. He said, You know, on the internet, no one knows if you're a dog, right? I don't know if you remember that one. Right. And, you know, it was the idea being that technology really empowers people. You can be whoever you want. You can be anonymous. You get all this information. It's the communications revolution. It's going to undermine authoritarian states. That's why we had the Arab Spring, the Tunisia revolution, the Egypt revolution. Today, if you're on the Internet, everyone knows if you're a dog, right? Today, it's not the communications revolution. It's the data revolution, the information revolution. It empowers states it empowers corporations does not empower individuals and it undermines liberal democracy technology used to strengthen liberal democracy 25 years ago the data revolution undermines liberal democracy and that's a really dramatic change that's happened in just five years and that worries me that our ability to maintain civic nationalism, open communities where we want to lead by example and we want to reach out to other countries as opposed to pulling up walls becomes a lot harder with the, the, with what tech, the role the technology plays in our societies today.
0: Maybe that means, and, and you touched on this before, that local government, local control, local experimentation, local issues really becomes the, the focus, focal point of future governance.
1: It's possible. Um, I mean, there's no question that, as we talked about in Japan, you know, local communities can be more homogeneous. Individuals have a better sense of who their leaders are. They have more ability to engage in relationships with them. They trust them more. So decentralization is really helpful. The problem is that technology is advantaging those that can aggregate and use data uh, effectively. And so, I mean, you know, if we thought China was going to fall apart and itself become more decentralized, actually China's consolidated a great deal of power under Xi Jinping, and a big part of that is big data. A big part of that is social credit and the fact that people do and don't get benefits from the state. Like the ability to travel or the ability to, you know, sort of get nice housing or whatnot on the basis of how they behave and the data that's been collected on them from their government. So it may be that the West is becoming more central, more decentralized, while authoritarian states are becoming more centralized. Maybe the North Koreans can now more effectively open up to other governments and not threaten the efficacy and the stability of their regime because they can control everything that people are actually watching. Where 10 years ago, if they had allowed in investment, you know, people see the way life is going to be, that that would be a revolt, a revolution in North Korea. Maybe authoritarian states don't need to worry about that as much anymore.
0: One of the other things that, that happens from that kind of decentralized government or decentralized control or local is is a greater reliance on tribalism. You stay in communities and in neighborhoods with people that are just like you and only just like you.
1: I think that's absolutely right. And I think this is where Trump is very effective. Is he is by far the best us-versus-them president you've ever seen, right? I mean, Trump's ability to say that we need to build a wall because Mexicans are going to come here and rape our women and criminalize our population. Uh that Haitians are going to bring AIDS, that Nigerians are never going to go back to their huts if we allow them in the US. That even inside the United States, the black athletes we let make tens of millions of dollars and then they how dare they? They they kneel during our national anthem. That's a very effective message to promote tribalism. And it may not be the kind of country that we want to live in but for a lot of people that feel like they have been forgotten, that their communities, no one is looking out for them, suddenly you have a president who's all of whose rhetoric and many of whose policies is actually oriented towards that.
0: It's interesting because the rhetoric and the policies don't sync up at all. And one wonders, putting all the other scandal and all the other stuff aside for the moment, that disconnect between rhetoric and policy arguably has to catch up at some point
1: well some of it is real disconnect and some of it isn't right so i mean definitely on the economic side it will catch up because trump's tax plan and his budget is a bunch of candy everyone benefited everyone had prizes right the rich got tax cuts the poor got tax cuts um businesses got tax cuts in a low interest rate environment now interest rates are going to go up Deficits are going to spiral like crazy when eventually we see some deficit cuts. Who's going to take the hit? You know it's going to be on benefits for the poor, right? And so that's going to catch up to him. But Trump's desire you know, to pull 2,000 troops out of Syria and not expand the war in Afghanistan, you know, that actually really is aligned with the interest of the average American. Trump's desire to not allow in refugees um, and Trump's desire to, you know, have a Muslim ban, that's a policy that's really kind of widely supported among his base. And, you know, you can argue that the economy is going to get hurt because now no international students, you get 25% reduction in international students coming to American mm-hmm. universities. That would, that's certainly going to undermine our competitiveness long term. But the average worker has been taking it on the chin anyway over the last 40 years. They feel like they're getting what they want under Trump as a consequence.
0: I mean, it has broader economic consequences just in terms of what those students that are coming in spend here. I mean, and and the impact on colleges and universities.
1: You're absolutely right. And if this was only about the economy, you'd have a really good argument. But again, if you've got large communities in the United States that have said the economy's done really well, um, the markets are growing like crazy, what's in it for me? Why should I support this? Why should I as a working class, you know, either from my community in Chelsea, Massachusetts or from Appalachia or from some other rural community, why should I support the Trans-Pacific Partnership? Why should I support NAFTA? I have gotten nothing. My family's got nothing. I don't know what to say to those people. I don't have a really good argument. I mean, if I were honestly telling them, I'd say, yeah, you probably shouldn't. Because until you protest and people take you seriously, you're like a Palestinian throwing a rock. Why do the Palestinians, why are they throwing themselves at the Gaza wall, even though they know the Israeli defense forces can use and will use lethal force? And it's because they've been lied to for decades. Their own government, the Israeli government, the Americans, the Europeans, the UN, everyone has said we're going to make things right for the Palestinians. And ultimately, no one has cared, while the Israelis are doing incredibly well. And if you're Palestinian, you're really damn frustrated there. And I think that the fact that I can say yeah we should still do free trade of course I should say that I've benefited tremendously from free trade right. in my townhouse in the west village in manhattan with my company that I started 20 years ago but my brother doesn't feel that way and that's not okay
0: It's really interesting you you talked about the palestinians israel is is an interesting case in point of and you say talk about them doing really well, well they're doing really well in part because they've walled themselves off because they've built that trumpian wall
1: That's right That's right. You want to talk about extreme vetting? I've experienced that. I've gone to Tel Aviv. I've flown into that airport. That's extreme vetting, right? They have incredible surveillance, electronic surveillance, human intelligence on everyone that's a potential, you know, sort of uh, object of suspicion uh, in their country. They don't need Palestinian labor anymore. They've walled themselves off. They've built walls under the border with sensors, so you can't tunnel in anymore. And and Israel today has one of the most effective and vibrant democracies of any country in the world. And it works as long as you don't think of the Palestinians as people. That's all you have to do. If you dehumanize the Palestinians, it works. Because, I mean, you know, they have no economic opportunities, no educational opportunities. Their security situation is horrible. But the average Israeli doesn't think about that anymore because the Palestinians can no longer effectively threaten a third intifada against Israel.
0: As you look around the world, and, and, you know, this is what you do in terms of really analyzing the, the state of, of play and the state of countries around the world, where are, are the models? Where are the places that, that there's either leadership or systems in place that might work within the context of all of this change?
1: Um, well, uh, you know, unfortunately, Israel is a model, right? I mean, the fact is, that if you don't fix the social contract the ability to wall people off is becoming stronger and more attractive to a lot of governments china is increasingly a model it's not one that you and i may like but it is a model and a lot of countries will follow it for a long time india we thought india was going to do better because they were more democratic now the indians are thinking wow the way that the chinese handle big data with our new universal ID and biometrics that is not voluntary, everyone has to do it, we can start growing faster than we did before if we more like China, less like the United States, less democratic. So first of all, my concern is that a lot of the models out there are models that are more authoritarian. They're models that are more top-down. They're models that involve more us versus them. Um, The models that are not like that right now tend to be either really rich and small and globalists like Singapore and the Emirates who are providing incredible training and great metrics on how everyone in government's working, and they can because they've only got a few million people, nine million in the Emirates, six million in Singapore, and they're all really rich. When you're really rich and you're small, you can do this <laughs> stuff. Japan, much bigger, completely homogeneous. If you're not so homogeneous, the models have been pretty small. They've been pretty local so far.
0: And, and where have those models been? even the small ones?
1: Well, I mean, you can point to certain communities in the United States. I like what Baltimore is doing right mm. now with Johns Hopkins Universities and a bunch of their and their business uh, community together, public-private partnerships, to reach out so you don't have the town-gown divide that you did before. And I think other, other cities uh, in the United States are starting to do that. I like that San Francisco, very wealthy place right now, is um, they've decided to provide uh, free, education, community college education to everyone that lives there that wants it. And I think that's a great thing to do. And I'd like to see more of that. But because right now people aren't addressing the problem. So we're not close I mean, Bhutan is a great model. It's got 2 million people. They're not very globalized. They've all got a king, and they're Buddhist animists. I mean, that's great, but we're not <laughs> going to become Bhutan in the United States anytime soon, right? So, I mean, you know, you could certainly say that Canada is doing this more effectively than the United States. Their social safety networks more effectively. Um, you know, the, the social inequality is not as great, but even Canada is experiencing a lot of the challenges that we are right now in the United States.
0: Ian Bremmer, his book is Us Versus Them, The Failure of Globalism. Ian, thanks so much for spending time with us here on Radio Who, What, Why. My pleasure. Thank you. And thank you for listening and for joining us here on Radio Who, What, Why. I hope you join us next week for another Radio Who, What, Why podcast. I'm Jeff Sheckman. If you like this podcast, please feel free to share and help others find it by rating and reviewing it on iTunes. You can also support this podcast and all the work we do by going to whowhatwhy.org forward slash donate.